Hey all, your friendly 22nd century post-climate catastrophe New York City neighborhood GM Mike here with some bonus content while we take a cycle off of production of Fun City. Shadowrun is a famously complex system, but between the mix of an ever-evolving set of house rules, which aim to streamline gameplay, and the magic of audio editing, where I can just remove 15-minute chunks where we read rules at one another, in Fun City we tend to skip a lot of the really nitty-gritty detail in favor of things like action, dialogue, labor law, and so on and so forth. But a few people have asked us to put together a little explainer about how Shadowrun is played in a broad sense, since it's different from other D20 systems like D&D, and some of the vocab is a little peculiar. So that's what this is. If that doesn't interest you and you're just here for the clam flipping and the train catching, then no hard feelings if you want to skip this one. We're going to cover the basic elements of Shadowrun's D6 dice pool system, the three main layers of gameplay, which is is physical space, the matrix, and the astral plane. And we're going to explain the most important rules and tests for taking actions in those realms. Now, just to be clear, Shadowrun's reputation for a rules-intense system is earned. We choose to play a less rules-intense game, doing some things wrong on purpose, sometimes keeping the results of technically not quite right roles in the interest of keeping the game moving, and we're always kind of redesigning and tinkering with the rule set to figure out something that feels fair to us, but is also fast and fun. During the course of this explainer, I'm going to try to be clear when I'm talking about how we do things on Fun City versus what the core rulebook says to do, but but if you want a more complete understanding of how to play the game as correctly as possible, go and grab a core rulebook and dig in. We play 5th edition, uh, but, you know, I'm going to say this again at the end. The only time you're playing a tabletop role-playing game incorrectly is if you're not having fun. And that is the most important rule. Everybody should be having fun. Anyways, on with the rules. Uh, fair warning, though, this is going to get pretty detail-oriented. So, the basic chance-determining mechanic in Shadowrun is the D6 dice pool, except for very rare circumstances, we're only rolling six-sided die. And sometimes we are rolling a lot of them. The better a PC is at something, the more D6s they roll. So if they're really good at figure skating, they may roll 25 D6s to decide how that triple axle lands. Really bad at driving a car, they may roll only two or three D6s to see if they pull off that Stady 180 while trying to evade the knight errant guards who caught them pilfering data chips. How do you determine how many die you roll? This is different, depending upon the situation, but the basic rule is this. You add an attribute score and a skill level. Attributes are a PC's base characteristics. These are things that should be pretty familiar. They're body, agility, reaction, strength, willpower, logic, intuition, and charisma. Plus magic, if you are awakened, or resonance, if you're a technomancer. These are innate, and they are set at character creation. They can be increased through gameplay by spending points that Shadowrun calls karma, but only at great cost. It is much easier to improve specific skills, which are also determined at character creation, and represent things that PCs have learned how to do. 
So, for example, you want to do a clam flip. That sounds like gymnastics, in which you have a level six skill. That's highly trained. That's not world class, but it's very, very good in comparison to the standard population of the world. Gymnastics is a skill that is based on your agility attribute. So, you add your agility score, which is also six. Wow, that is like exceptional natural talent to your gymnastics skill, and that means that you roll a dice pool of 12. Agility 6, gymnastics 6, dice pool of 12. Other examples. Let's say you want to lie to someone. That's your charisma score plus your con skill. Using a firearm is usually agility plus your long arms skill, your SMG skill, your pistols skill, and so on and so forth. Swinging an axe or throwing a punch is agility plus melee or unarmed. Casting a spell is intuition plus spell casting, and so on and so forth. Now, these base pools are also often modified. Do you have equipment which helps or hinders? Are you hurt or on drugs? Do you have a specialization in the particular flip, gun, lie, or spell you are about to fire off? Is it hard to see the environment? Is it hot or slippery? All of these things could add to or subtract from your dice pool. and These are referred to as situational modifiers. So... Once you have determined the number of D6s that you are going to roll and then rolled them, in Shadowrun, it is not the combined numerical value of the faces that determine your outcome. It is the number of hits or successes that you roll. A hit is a five or a six only. Generally speaking, four or more hits from one dice pool is thought to represent an unlikely outcome, something that is the result of luck or intense training, with increasing successes indicative of increasingly remote regions of human capability. In 5e, players also have what are called limits, a maximum number of successes per test type. And test types are things like physical, social, mental, astral, and so on. These are determined by their core attributes, the equipment they're using, or the intensity of the spell that they are casting. And basically it means there is a maximum number of successes that they can get, even if their dice pool is very, very large. We on Fun City are admittedly very bad about keeping track of our limits, and that is mostly my fault, since I learned Shadowrun on 4th edition, which doesn't have limits. So, you know, it's a process. I'm getting better at it. Sorry. This is all very different from D&D, for instance, which is built on a D20 bonus system. In D&D, let's say you are a barbarian and you have to make a strength roll. You would roll a D20 and then you would add your strength bonus, which is probably significant. And the higher your result, the more successful you are. And then you get to smash whatever you want. In Shadowrun, it is possible, though unlikely, that you could roll 20 dice and get no hits. Now, there are rules that are designed to help avoid this outcome, namely something called buying hits, where you can trade a number of dice in your pool for guaranteed hits. But we don't do that because it's more interesting to have even expert level characters fail occasionally. Because, I mean, you know, we all have bad days, right? 
You can also often roll your base attribute score for a skill that you have no rank in. So like, if you don't have a pistols skill, you can still fire a gun by rolling just agility. You can still use a comlink by rolling logic even if you don't have a computer skill. This is called defaulting. And there are certain things that you can't default on, like flying a plane, performing surgery, hacking a mainframe, basically anything that's so complicated, if you don't have at least a low-level skill in it, you wouldn't even know where to start. In D&D, you get a critical success on D20 faces 17 through 20, depending upon how your DM plays, and you get critical failures on one. In Shadowrun, you can get what are called glitches if you roll half or more ones. Glitches have a similar outcome to natural ones. Something bad happens. But what is fun about glitches is that you can roll half or more ones and still get enough hits to beat your test, which is to say, accomplish your goal. You can succeed and fail somehow at the same test. A critical glitch is a dice pool of half or more ones with no successes. That is much closer to a d20 nat 1, and it is where the dreck really hits the fan. There are a few critical success rules that we bounce between. I'm working on getting us to be a little bit more consistent and clear about this. Um, but basically, whenever you hear me say, you tell me what happens to one of the players, that means that someone rolled well enough to crit. And finally, you may also hear us talk about edge. Edge represents luck, which a character may have more or less of. Edge is an innate attribute, like all of the others, but it is also a bankable set of points that can be spent in a number of ways. It can be spent to mitigate the impacts of a glitch, to avoid failure, and even death. In our game, Edge is most commonly spent to re-roll the dice in a pool that didn't come up as hits. Like many other tabletop RPGs, there are two basic types of roles, or tests, in Shadowrun. Threshold and Opposed. A threshold test means that you have to beat a stable number. You want to break through a fire door? Get seven hits on a strength test. You need to remember the middle name of the Lightspeed trading firm CEO you're impersonating's wife? Beat five on a memory test. Opposed tests, on the other hand, are between two dice pools. This is where something is fighting back. And here's where it starts to get um, more complex. So, like, let's say a Decker is trying to defeat the security on a wireless maglock. They roll their hacking skill plus their logic score, and the number of successes that they can get is limited by their sleaze score, which is a special attribute determined by their gear. And the maglock will roll its intuition plus its firewall to defend against being hacked. Wait, 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 you may say. How does a maglock have intuition? It's a maglock. Well, you're right. It doesn't. In this situation, unless the maglock is connected to a persona, um, which is a word for like a, a living person on the matrix, basically, its intuition is replaced by its device rating, a kind of catch-all score for how complex a piece of gear is. And hold on, again, you may say, does the maglock have its own firewall? Just this one little lock? Well, maybe, but probably not. Usually, again, you would replace firewall with its device rating. 
maybe now you're also starting to see why Shadowrun is a rules-intense system. So, let's say our decker is rolling a hacking plus logic dice pool of 9, limited by a sleaze of 6, and the maglock, with a device rating of 4, is rolling a dice pool of 8, limited by, you guessed it, its device rating of 4. The decker rolls 3 successes, but the lock, or more accurately, the system that it is connected to, rolls 4 successes. Our decker is unsuccessful. And failing a sleaze action means that they get noticed by the security team babysitting the mineral research facility they're trying to infiltrate. The other kind of test in Shadowrun is an extended test. This is a kind of test that just takes a while. Usually that means that there is a large number of successes that is needed to pass it, and that there is an interval that has to pass between rolls. So it might be five minutes of in-game time, a few hours, a few days, or even weeks if a player is training a new skill. It all depends. Extended tests are usually threshold tests. You may also hear a player offer to help another player with their role. This is called a teamwork test. If two characters have the same skill, one can roll their dice pool first. They are the assistant. However many successes they get, the person who is focusing on the task, the leader, gets to add that many dice to their dice pool and extend their limit by that much. Now, the total number of dice that can be added to the leader's pool is equal to their skill rating or the highest attribute score involved, which is basically another way of saying it's no small amount. Uh, teamwork tests actually do make a big difference. So just like in real life, it pays to work together. The most common type of opposed test is physical combat, throwing a punch, swinging an axe, or if you're a real scoundrel, firing a gun. The basic anatomy of a physical combat round goes like this. The attacker rolls to hit, the defender rolls to dodge. If the defender successfully dodges, the round ends. If the defender does not dodge, you determine the maximum damage of the hit. And now, knowing how damaging the hit can be, the defender rolls to reduce that damage. This is sometimes called a soak roll because it determines how much of the possible damage the defender soaks up. Weirdly, in Shadowrun, the defender often has to roll more than the attacker in combat. Looking at this in more detail, let's say that TK is going to sock some troublemaker in the jaw. He would roll his agility plus his melee combat skill, and if he's throwing a punch boxing style, which he probably is, he gets extra dice because of his specialization. So he rolls five successes. The Stooji Socking rolls their reaction plus their intuition to dodge the hit and gets three successes. So TK has two net hits, which means the punch lands, but it's not as bad as it could have been. We now add those two net hits to the base damage value of TK's attack. This is something that most attack types or weapons have, a base damage value. So in this case, that base damage value is simply his strength because he's punching, which is five. 
So the total possible damage TK can do in this round, given the quality of the defender's dodge, is 5 plus 2, which equals 7. Normally, a fist deals stun damage, but since TK has the killing hands attribute, the target will take physical damage. That stooge now rolls their body rating plus their armor to attempt to resist damage. This dice pool is normally large, especially if someone has good armor. This stooge will roll 20 dice, and for each hit they get, they reduce the total damage starting at seven, and they roll six successes. So TK connects, punches them square in the solar plexus, but that Kevlar vest is worth its weight in Nuyen. This jabroni only takes one physical damage. As you might imagine, there are a million variations to this process. You can spend initiative points, and I'm not going to bother explaining how initiative works in this. I think it's just a little bit beyond our scope. But you can spend initiative to have a stronger defense role or to interrupt other people's attacks or to parry attacks. Your attack dice pool might change if your gun has terrible recoil. Your defense dice pool might change depending upon the firing mode of the gun that is shooting at you. As an attacker, you can willingly reduce your dice pool by a certain amount to call a shot and aim for a specific place on someone's body. If you have a counterspelling skill, you can allocate a certain number of dice to reduce the effects of someone else's spell casting. The target of that spell may get a chance to perform a physical dodge, they may get to resist effects with their willpower, but they may only get a chance to reduce damage in a soak roll depending upon the type of spell. A piece of gear or a computer system or a host may get a chance to defend itself from a cyber attack, but if it's a technomancer doing the cracking, sometimes their sheer will is so strong the system has no choice but to succumb, and so on and so forth. But this process of attack, dodge, damage, and soak is the basic framework for most combat. To give you a sense of how bananas it can get, a level of bananas that we do not aspire to here on Fun City, I'm going to now read my favorite section of the Shadowrun 5th edition core rulebook, which explains how recoil works for firearms. <clears throat> To figure out your recoil penalty, start with the amount of recoil compensation you have. You get one free point anytime you start firing, then you add your strength divided by three, rounded up, and the recoil compensation of any guns you are prepared to shoot. That means loaded and in your hands. If you have to put bullets in it or draw it from a holster or do anything of the sort, you're not ready to shoot that weapon. Then, subtract any bullets you're about to fire. If the number is a negative number, that's your recoil penalty. Subtract the penalty from your dice pool before you roll for the attack. When making multiple firearm attacks in a single action phase, calculate the total recoil penalty based on the bullets to be fired that round and remove it from your dice pool before splitting the pool for the multiple attacks. Okay, now, on to other non-physical realms. 
You can think of the matrix as a digital layer that sits on top of the physical world. Most people interact with it constantly and through augmented reality or AR technology. They have goggles, glasses, contact lenses, cochlear implants, haptic feedback, clothing, and even scent emitters worn or implanted in their bodies. And they experience the world almost every waking moment through the haze of this overlaid technological layer. In fact, the meat plane is so sparse, so motionless and bland when one is not viewing it through AR that there are several psychological conditions which describe the depression that sets in when people are forced to see the world as it really is, sans AR. In the Shadowrun universe, anything large enough to accommodate a computer chip has one and is therefore connected to the matrix. This is one thing that explains why one's AR field of view can get pretty crowded. Unfiltered, there are literally countless devices broadcasting their location, advertising to you, displaying various messages, alerts, demands, requests. And so most people dial in a kind of preferred density for their AR gear. Most people only want to see things that are personally relevant to them. Their devices, the devices of their closest contacts, maybe the advertisements for a hand-selected number of brands that they like. Though, let's be honest, if as technology wants you to see their ads, they're going to find a way. Out in the world, all of these various icons, images, signs, advertisements, etc., they're called AROs, or arrows, for augmented reality objects. Now, most people interact with the Matrix, mostly in AR, but there is also the option to go into full VR. Instead of viewing the physical world with a technological overlay, one becomes fully immersed in the Matrix, their meat body completely motionless, gathering dust. There are a few different ways to go full VR, and it's not like what you or I would think of. This is not goggles and headphones, but a much more complete sensory experience. Normal folk need some kind of neural interface, like trodes that attach to their scalp or an implanted data jack or some such, to go full VR. Technomancers can do it without the aid of gear. And there are two kinds of VR experience. Cold sim is where you can hear and see stuff, but you don't really feel too much. Hot sim is the whole shebang, a five sense experience, including touch and so including pain. Hot sim is also much faster, an unadulterated, unfiltered data stream. The trade-off being hot sim is also highly illegal. And by the way, technomancers can only experience VR in hot sim. As far as what the Matrix looks like in VR, it's kind of like a broad, endless plane below a vertical infinity of traversable space. The lower plane is kind of like the surface of a planet, marked with the icons of nearby electronics and some retail locations. High up above, though, float the sculpted presences of most every host. These are locations that you can visit on the Matrix in VR. The lower hosts, in what you might call low altitude, are smaller companies like local bookstores, your doctor's office, or a club like the ball pit. The higher up you go, the larger the hosts are in both size and influence. The largest AAA megacorporations and government hosts float high up in outer orbit, looking down over everyone. 
Traveling between these hosts is trivial. Essentially, you think it and you're there. But host access isn't a given. It's sometimes awarded to everyone. Sometimes it's only awarded to folks who ask nicely. And sometimes only to the people who have the right credentials. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about hacking. One of the most important skills that deckers and technomancers have is being able to sort through this maddening sea of digital ephemera that crowds every view of the matrix and get all of the details of the technology that underlies it, the various presences that manage that technology, and of course, their weaknesses. The first step in the process of doing this is often a matrix perception test. Matrix perception tests are a kind of threshold test. For each success, the person rolling gets to learn one thing, like an object's device rating, the last time some file was edited, how much matrix damage someone has taken, if an icon is in the area that they're scanning but it's trying to hide. This is different from something like a matrix search, which is like Googling. A matrix perception test helps you find devices in the environment and gets you details about those devices. A matrix search gets you the most recent sports game match scores. A standard matrix perception test is computer plus intuition limited by the data processing rating of the gear being used, or in the case of a technomancer who doesn't need gear, their logic score. If a player is trying to matrixily perceive a piece of gear that's trying to hide, it becomes an opposed test. And that piece of gear rolls logic plus its sleaze rating. Okay, let's explain that now. Sleaze is part of a complement of attributes called matrix attributes that are determined, again, by the gear being used. Often, it's a cyber deck, a highly restricted piece of technology that is required to engage in electronic warfare and cyber combat, a.k.a. elite hacksawing. Decks have many, many different appearances, but colloquially we... But we tend to think of them as looking something like a slightly more portable, old-style microcomputer. Boxy, plastic, big buttons, clicky keyboard, and tiny screen. And they have ratings in attack, sleaze, data processing, and firewall, or ASDF. Lol. All of these sort of do what you would expect. Attack tells you how good this deck will be at hurting people and frying electronics. Sleaze is about sneaking into stuff. Data processing is kind of like bandwidth. And Firewall covers your butt if someone else is trying to fry you. The central mechanic of hacking is called, in 5e, getting marks. A mark is a way to describe how much access one has to a system or a device. One mark allows you to do a little. Three marks allows you to basically do whatever you want. There are a couple ways to get marks, a sleazy way and an attacky way, but they both work roughly like the combat roles that we discussed. A decker tries to inject malicious code into the data stream, and the device rolls to reject that code. If the device is successful, the decker could get noticed by the host that they're trying to infiltrate, or they could even get hurt. But if the decker is successful... They get to growl their favorite phrase. I'm in.
Technomancers don't usually need marks because they can just use their weird brains to make technology do their bidding. They harness the electromagnetic essence of the Matrix called resonance to thread what are called complex forms. These are inexplicable technological forces that bend gear to the Technomancer's will. Sort of like spells, but they only work on technology. The trade-off is a Technomancer can exhaust themselves in the process. Both Technomancers and Magic users suffer a kind of damage, usually stun damage, from using their powers. For Technomancers, it's called Fade, and for Magic users, it's called Drain. Like in combat, this is damage the player gets to resist. The base damage value is determined by the strength of the spell or complex form, which is decided at the time of casting or threading. It's then reduced by a dice roll that involves, usually, mental attributes like willpower, intuition, or charisma. The character has to basically power through the intense cognitive effort it takes to reshape the substrate of their environment. And if they don't, they can get really sleepy and even pass out. The Awakened have another thing in common with technology users, which is that they too have their own peculiar realm. But instead of existing as a layer on top of the physical world, you can think of it as something that sits under it and even supports it. And this is the astral plane. Much like the Matrix, the astral plane is a dense environment, lousy with information, but only those trained in deciphering it can find any sense. An astral perception test allows an awakened character to discern some information about a being or the environment. This is referred to as a sensing, and it allows a magic user to see if someone else is a magic user and learn how powerful they are. It also allows magicians to determine if someone, anyone, is injured, what state of mind they're in, or if they have any cyberware implants. A sensing also involves reading someone's aura and getting a sense of their essence, another innate attribute that describes how, big quote fingers, human someone is. So in Shadowrun, uh, those with a lot of bio and cyber technology implants, for instance, they have a lower essence. I find essence to be kind of weird and a little ableist, so we don't really talk about it too much on the show, but we do retain one of its major mechanics, which is that someone's total magic capability is tied to their essence. So the less original human meat that you're made from, the less magical you can be. This to me seems like a fair and interesting trade-off, unlike tying essence to someone's humanity. If the Ascensor is skilled, they can track magic users through the astral plane, from the astral signature that they leave behind, perhaps even leading them to their physical plane location. And if they're very, very good... And a sensor may even be able to tell if someone is a technomancer. In a host on the Matrix, a Decker might encounter a security spider and do battle with their persona, their sculpted representation on the Matrix. Likely they would do that alongside ICE or intrusion countermeasure electronics, artificial intelligence constructs that mindlessly protect the host turf that they're assigned to. And likewise, an awakened Shadowrunner may tussle in the astral plane with another mage and any number of summoned spirits. Astral combat is limited to melee attacks, enchanted weapons, and mana spells. No guns, no swords that haven't been imbued with some divine power. And yes, in certain situations, if you die in the astral plane or the matrix, you die 
in real life. So finally, death. How do characters die in Shadowrun? Each character has two damage tracks, one for physical damage and one for stun damage. These are derived by their body and willpower attributes. The higher body or willpower you have, the more physical and stun damage you can take, respectively. When a character fills their physical damage track, they fall unconscious and are moments from death. The way that this works is that every body minutes that the runner is incapacitated, they take one box of what's called overflow damage. Overflow is damage that you have beyond your normal physical damage track. And if the overflow damage that you take exceeds body by one, that runner will join their fallen comrades at the runner bar of the great beyond. So for example, a character with a body attribute of 4 will have a physical damage track of 10 per the core rulebook. If that character is at 9 boxes of physical damage and then takes 3 physical damage, they are now 2 boxes into overflow. Every 4 minutes, because that is their body attribute, they take 1 more damage unless stabilized. And if they take 5 overflow damage total, they're done. So if no one steps up, in 12 minutes, this character is toast. In the past, not in Fun City, but in other games I've played, I've replaced minute with combat round, which is roughly three seconds, thus making the specter of death much more overbearing. We haven't had to deal with that yet in Fun City, but when we do, we'll probably have a little chat about it. If a runner takes so much damage that their overflow boxes fill immediately, they die on the spot with no chance for revival, Whoops. This is a good reason to be careful if your character has taken 9 out of 10 physical damage and some jerkbag from the Aztecnology corporate military starts loading his grenade launcher. Now, there are a few ways to be saved if a runner doesn't immediately go kaput. A teammate can rush to their aid and stabilize or heal them. A runner on the brink of death can also permanently reduce their edge attribute by one. This is called burning an edge as opposed to spending an edge to stabilize themselves. Stun damage works similarly to physical damage, except when the stun damage track is full, additional stun is taken as physical damage at the rate of two to one. We've also had some discussion lately, if you have listened to Fun Chatty, about whether a character who fills their stun damage track should be knocked unconscious. This is weirdly unclear in the rulebook, and we've recently decided that from now on, when a character's stun damage track is filled, they will be knocked down temporarily, but not out permanently. We might revise this house rule as we continue to play to perhaps add additional willpower checks, but we'll see. We'll see how it feels now that we've made this decision and revise as needed. Whew, that was a lot. You did great. Congratulations for listening this far. I hope that that was fun, or at least uh, enlightening. Uh, and I hope it sheds a little light on what is going on around the table while we are playing Fun City. Now, I'm going to say it again. If you're thinking of playing Shadowrun at home, don't let any of this stuff dissuade you. There is a lot to understand, but you really only need to know a surprisingly few number of things to get a game going. 
And you should know that we ignore a fair amount of the rules. We probably ignore more rules than we use. We choose to focus instead on what feels right to us while we're playing. So as long as everyone is having a good time, you are playing the game correctly. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next Friday.